As I said at the opening today, at the close of our service today, we'll be doing communion, which is our normal tradition, the first Sunday of the month that we, uh, we do a couple of things. Um, in case you're new here, we have our communion service, or we, we practice communion at the first Sunday of every month generally. We also take up a special offering called the, the fellowship offering. If you, when you come and go, you'll see a little basket on the first Sunday of the month. Uh, we give to that. It goes to our deacon fellowship, and they use that money to meet the needs of people within the congregation and within our community. It's kind of our benevolence fund, and that's when we take that up as we uh, each, each first Sunday of each month. Um, it has been my practice um, since I've been here is that when I do communion, I generally read uh, different passages than the quote-unquote normal communion passage from you know, the one from 1 Corinthians, I will read this at the close of the service today, uh, where it says, you know, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. But I often pick other scriptures, and I try to pick scriptures that highlight or are connected to our, our service or our sermon that day and try to tie those things together. But I often don't get the chance to kind of explain why I picked this passage, that I'm hoping that when you hear that, that there's some key words that you kind of pick up and are able to make the connections yourself in a, in a lot of those cases, but what we're going to do today, as we look at God at these this this uh, new sermon series, the gifts from God, and and in particular today, we're going to be talking about the gift of the gift of grace. I'm actually going to be talking about the the passages, or at least two of them, that we will read during our communion time. So you'll get to hear them again, but hopefully, it will have a little bit more clear connection with communion today. But first, I want to kind of give you some highlights from some scriptures. Uh, Romans chapter 3 verses 23 and 24, one that was already read this morning, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. And again, in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 7, it says, Of this gospel I've been made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. And so very clearly, the, the scriptures teach us that grace, the grace of God is a gift of God. That grace is one of the gifts of God. And, and, and in this season, what we're trying to do is look at... Um, the gifts that God has given us in order for us to live in this fallen world, grateful, thankful, and peaceful. And, and as we look at these gifts that God's given us, I, I believe they can be kind of uh, encouragement. They can be fuel for our gratitude as we live in a world, and as I explained last week, that we as Christians live in a fallen world, but we should live differently than the rest of the people who live in this world, that we should live grateful and thankful and peaceful in this world. And I really believe thinking about how we live and, and the gifts that God's given us can help us live in this world grateful, thankful, and peaceful. So as we're looking at this gift, this gift that the Bible defines, this gift of God, grace, I'll just be right up front with you. I believe there's a lot of things that I, I grasp about God, that I understand about God, that as I've read the scriptures, as I've studied them over the years, as I've had the Holy Spirit working in my life, that there's things that I, that I, that I kind of understand. I'm not going to say I understand God, but there's things that I, that I, that I kind of get. 
like love. I, I kind of know what love is, you know. My father has a famous saying. He says, love is a feeling when you have a feeling like you never felt before. You know, uh, a lot of people will define love as, I can't define it, but I know what it is when I see it. You know, that we have this internal sense of love uh, because we love other people. And so when we talk about God loving us, I can kind of grasp that a little bit, that, that I know what love is in some kind of way. And so when I'm told that God loves me, that I have an appreciation and an understanding, a comprehension of that from a personal kind of way. Um, you know, I understand wrath a little bit because I've had that feeling at times too, you know, that, that there's, I have an understanding of justice and that God is a just God and, and that things should be fair and that things should be right and, and that when things aren't fair and right and just, I feel this kind of internal angst that I want that to be corrected, you know, that is the wrath, uh, that things need to be made right and, and guilty people need to pay the penalty and be responsible for the things that they do that are, that are wrong. Right? And so I can understand those components of God a little bit uh, because I've experienced those. But grace, of all the attributes of God, grace is probably the most difficult thing for me to really, really get. And maybe I'm just admitting to you that I'm not a very gracious person. <laughs> uh, maybe, you know, because it just doesn't make sense to, to, to just really try to sit down and think about how God uh, is gracious. You know, there's a famous saying um, that pre preachers use that I've said a lot of times, and, and as I say this and I start to try to think and ponder and even understand this little saying, it, it really kind of baffles me. The saying goes, there's nothing you can do to make God love you anymore. Likewise, there's nothing you can do to make God love you any less. That's grace. And as I sit there and try to like, there's nothing I can do to make God love me more. You know, if I, nothing I can do to make God love me more. And nothing I can do to make God love me less. That blows my mind. And I think that's a good place to understand or thought of trying to comprehend grace. But so we're going to spend a little bit of time just trying to define what grace is a little bit, and I'm admitting up front that this is going to be a tough thing. We're going to be reading from Ephesians chapter 2. This is one of the passages that we'll read during communion today, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. And you were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Those first passages kind of said, this is what we were, right? Children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him 
and, see, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Our salvation is given to us by the grace of God. Now, the, the technical dictionary, theological definition for the word grace, unmerited favor, right? That God puts his favor on us, though we have not earned it. It's, it's unmerited the more common way of saying it, I think, is receiving what you do not deserve. <laughs> That's grace. Getting what you do not deserve. The problem, and I think one of the reasons maybe we struggle with grace, maybe why I struggle with grace, is to be quite honest with you, is we do not live <coughs> in a grace-filled society. Graciousness is not something that our world is well known for. And I'll put it this way. More people, I think, are concerned with their personal rights. And when you become more concerned about your personal rights, it makes you less gracious. Because grace is giving something they don't deserve. And most people are concerned about, this is my right. I want to get what I do deserve. And their focus is not being on gracious, but being personally their own focus. And also, the whole idea of entitlement. I think the more entitled people feel, the less they recognize and appreciate grace, right? They expect it. I'm entitled to that. That's what I should have. And so when grace is given, when, they, when people receive what they don't deserve, they already think, well, actually, I do deserve that, right? Let me tell you this. We do not have the right or the entitlement to enter into God's paradise. That's the truth. It is not a right of all humans, and it is not what's entitled to us. As I shared with you last week, my, one of my mentors, he gets up every morning and says, I deserve to go to hell. <laughs> Anything less than that is a pretty good day. That is our right and our entitlement as fallen sinful creatures. As that passage says, we were all given in to our passions of our flesh. We were all nature by nature children of wrath like the rest of God. That's what we deserve, God's wrath. That's what we're entitled to, and that's what we have a right to. But grace is giving us what we don't deserve. Salvation, eternal life, a relationship with God, an entrance into paradise. It is by grace that we've been saved. It also mentions God's mercy. Mercy is a little bit different than grace. I'm just going to put that out there so you know the difference between mercy and grace. Grace is not getting what you is is getting what you do not reserve. Mercy is not getting what you do reserve. It's a withholding of the consequences. It's a holding back of the outcomes that you deserve. And that God, the Bible tells us very clearly that God is a God of mercy, not giving us what we do deserve, and He's a God of grace giving us what we don't deserve. 
And then there's two sides of this wonderful character of God. By grace, we have been saved. So those are some definitions of what grace is, this, this getting what we don't deserve. But I want us to kind of comprehend how profound the teaching of grace was as it comes into the New Testament with the arrival of the Christ, right? Well, that, that we know there's a difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament, that there's a new covenant in God's blood. We'll talk about that today. Or there's a passage that talks about when we celebrate communion, that this is the establishment of a new com- covenant, the covenant of grace. I want us to comprehend just how powerful that message was to the hearers in the New Testament because this was new. To many of us, it may seem old because we've maybe heard about grace all our lives. But there's a cataclysmic change at the arrival of Jesus and how people are able to approach uh, God. This comes from a Romans chapter 3. We're going to read verses 21 through 26. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. It says this, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. I want you to imagine for a moment what it would be like if I told you each week for you to get to heaven, there were certain rules you had to follow. Things like obey all the traffic laws, especially the speed limit signs. If it says 35, you drive 35, 25, 20, whatever it is. And if you don't drive the speed limit, you're not going to heaven. Or that you can only eat at restaurants where you're seated by a hostess and a wait staff comes to your table to take your order. It's the only restaurants you're allowed to eat at. And if you eat at one where you have a drive-thru, not getting to go to heaven. Or you can only listen to music that has 120 beats a minute or less. I came up with that one because I actually had somebody tell me one time they, that was the defining line between God's music and the music of the devil, 120 beats per minute. <laughs> if you listen more, if it's faster than that, you're done. And every Wednesday, you have to fast and eat, drink nothing but water all day, even if it's your birthday or anniversary, every Wednesday. Now, men have to wear a three-piece suit, and, wear, and ladies have to wear an ankle-length dress to church, and preferably in most public engagements, or you're not going to heaven. And you have to spend at least one hour a day reading your Bible and praying. Now, that's just one, two, three, four, five, six rules. Now, if you only had to keep those six things to get in heaven without breaking a single one your entire life, and if you break a single one, it's over 
How many of you would make it? I'm telling you, if my birthday falls on a Wednesday and Joan Callen brings me a coconut cream pie, <laughs> it could be trouble. Just think about trying to live under the weight of those six fairly simple rules your entire life. The Jews had been given a whole set of rules by God, and they had written another 600 and some rules on top of that to try to please God. And they spent their entire life trying to keep all these rules so that they would please God. And, God, and Jesus comes in and sets them free from that law because of grace. He's like, you don't have to do those things. I'm going to give you what you don't deserve because they all broke those rules. And, and the one thing they learned pretty quickly is, yeah, these rules would make us right for God, but no one can keep them. That, that sooner or later we're going to mess up on these rules. And, and those rules became a burden that weighed down on them. And they, and they were crushed by it. And they, they were hopeless. And they were constantly being judged and judgmental about, oh, you broke this one and you broke this one. And they would come up with all kinds of ways to try to keep the rules. And then they'd come up with all kinds of loopholes so they could get around the ways they came up to come up with and keep the rules. It became this giant burden and grace walks in and is like, yeah, but you don't have to do that. You can receive what you don't deserve. And that we could break these rules and that God could say, I still love you. Now, I want to point out one truth here. That there's a big difference between have to and want to. We want to, or hope we want to, uh, to live in such a way to honor God with our behavior. I want God to be honored with how I live. I want to try to keep his rules. I want to do the things that he says do because I love him. And the Bible clearly says is to obey God is to love God or is to love God is to obey God. I want to bring glory to God as one of his children that, that, I, that I take his name, right? Uh, as my parents would often tell me when I was a teenager and I'd get ready to go out on Friday night, the last thing they would say to me over and over, remember who you are. Remember who you are. It, it was my father's way of telling me, don't forget, you represent me in the public sphere. When you go out here, people know who you belong to. And whatever you do out there is a reflection on me. Represent our family well. That's all he was communicating to me. And he'd always say, it, just remember who you are. Yep. We need to have that same thought when we live in this world, that we want to live a certain way so that we bring glory to our family, so that our Father is honored by we being people who are kind and follow His rules and do the ways, things that God says He has to. But it's a whole different, it's a whole different thing to want to do that than to feel we have to do that. And if our sense is, and if you ever think, I have to, then you don't understand the statement. You can't do anything to make God love you more, and you can't do anything to make God love you less. And if you approach God in this, well, I have to do this, or God's not going to be pleased, you're struggling to comprehend and grasp grace. 
right? Yes, Father, I want to, I want to do what you want me to do because I love you, not so that you will love me is really the difference. Personalizing grace. I just realized I forgot something in my office. I'll be right back. Talk among yourselves. I just like to point out, I did remember Children's Church. Here's a couple of verses I'm just going to read to you. The first one's from, we read this one earlier from Ephesians chapter 3, verse 7. This is Paul speaking. He says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. Paul recognizes a very personalized gifting of grace. That, that what he was able to do, he goes on to talk about what this gift is, that he's called to preach to the Gentiles and, and spread the gospel among the Gentile people. And he saw this as a gift of God. This was God's grace to him. It was a very personal gift for him. A little later in Ephesians chapter 4, it says this, But grace was given to each one of us, According to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. And he gave, as, and he gave gifts to men. And so not only that Paul recognized his gift. He said, this is God's gift of grace to me. And later on, he tells the church that grace was given to all of us. There's a gift to all of us by the measure of God's grace. And I just want you to kind of personalize your grace gift a little bit today. I want you to take a moment and think about what your gift of grace was. And so I have a measure. We're going to measure it. We're going to measure God's grace. All right? So to enter heaven, heaven's a perfect place. We read that in our, in our reading on the black candle today, that heaven's a perfect place. It's a 100% righteous place because that's where God lives and God's 100% righteous and God won't have anything to do with sin. He, he, he avoids it and if it comes into contact with him, he destroys it. And so to get to go to heaven, you need to measure up to God's standard. This is God's standard, by the way, for today. And God's standard is right here at the top. 100%. Now, how many of you have ever been to a fair or amusement park. For me, growing up in, in South Carolina, Carowinds was our amusement park. It, it sits outside Charlotte. It sits actually right on the, the state line. There's a place in the theme park where you can walk, and the state line between South Carolina and North Carolina runs right down Main Street. And as a kid, I'd always like, I've been two states at once. It was, that was our fun thing to do. And for here, I don't know, King's Dominion, or what's that one out in Ohio? There's a place out there lots of people go to I haven't been to. But anyway, in each one of these theme parks, there's something like this. Ever seen that? To get on this ride, you must meet this height, right? 
you know, and, and as a kid, because we would go to Carowinds every year as a kid, you know, and there was all these rides for a long time that I couldn't, I didn't measure up to. I couldn't get on that ride because I wasn't tall enough. And you're kind of like, well, next year, <coughs> you know, maybe I'll, I'll figure it out. And we'd come up with all these strategies like, well, if we fill our shoes with enough paper, this year we'll, we'll be able to get to go on that roller coaster finally, you know. We're going to figure out some way to cheat the system. And it never worked. You just kind of had to wait till you finally measured up. Well, heaven's kind of like that. If you don't meet God's standard, if you don't measure up to 100%, you don't get to go in. You don't get to take the ride. And so God's standard is 100%. Now, how many of you have met God's standard? I would like to meet you and shake your hand. No 100%ers in here. All right. Well, I want you to think about it. You know, there's these other standards here, and I kind of thought about myself, and I have a pretty good opinion of myself. I, my self-esteem doesn't hurt. And I figure I probably fall somewhere in the 50 percentile range, right about halfway. That's me. You know what they call from here to here, between where I'm at and God's standard of perfection? This is grace. This is my measure of grace. That on my own, I could get about halfway there. And I need a measure of 50% grace, at least. Maybe I'm overestimating myself. Maybe you're a better person than I am, which wouldn't really be hard to be. And you might make the three-quarter mark right here. From here to the top, there's your measure of grace. Maybe you're lifelong Christians. You got saved when you were three years old. Um, and you've spent your entire life serving the Lord each and every day, and you're at the seventh, eighth mark. You're way up here. And we're grateful for the people who are like that, and God's been great. God's people are just really saints. You still have a measure of grace you need because you're going to be less than God's standard. Or maybe you feel like, I barely make it to the quarter mark. I got just past one quarter you're still reliant on a measure of grace. And here's what I want us to know, that whatever we lack, God makes up for. That's grace. And when we look and think about God, when we think about the communion today, when we think about Jesus dying on the cross, it's to make up that difference. That he became our sin so that we might become the righteousness of God, that he makes up the difference, that whatever we think we've done, we all need a measure of grace. And the reason I want you to understand that is because here's something I think we don't, we, we need to apply this, that our gratitude toward God is often in correlation to our understanding of how our sin or that God's grace is greater than our sin, that when we understand our sin and God's grace and how God's grace makes up for our sin, how it's greater than our sin, then it gives us something to be really grateful for. And if we don't understand our sin well, if we don't understand the difference that God made up for us, then we often feel entitled or that we have a right to this. But when we understand just 
how we used to be like all people, children of wrath by nature, and that God in his grace saved us, that he made up whatever we lacked in perfection of God. And the more we lack, the more grateful we will be as we understand that. And so understanding your own gift of grace, what God has done for you, because I don't know all that's in your heart, all that's in your mind, all that's in your past. I don't know all the struggles you've had, but you do. You know what God has done for you. You know the grace he's given to you. You know the difference that he made up in your life to bring you into salvation. And when you take time to think about that, I can't understand why we wouldn't be like, thank you, Lord. Thank you for making up for that and for that and for that and for that. Thank you for giving me what I don't deserve and not giving me what I do. Thank you for your grace. And that we live now under grace. We can depend upon it. And we live lives as children who want to bring glory to God. And finally, so we've talked about defining grace. We tried to grasp it and how it's freed us from all this law and that we can live under grace. We've personalized grace. And, and, and in a few moments uh, uh, before we take communion, uh, Elaine's going to play some quiet music for us. This will be our time to really personalize it and to really think about how gracious God has been to you, what he's done for you and the good gifts you've received that you don't deserve, that all the gifts we have are undeserved gifts from God. But we've got to remember grace. So here's what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance for me. For often as you eat the bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I think it's kind of maybe a visual shock to our system to look at the communion table and see on one side the nativity and on the other side the communion trays representing the birth of Christ along with the death of Christ. All of this is grace. It is by grace that God came and dwelt among us. And it is by grace that same God died on the cross. And though we, some, we sometimes draw a very distinct and stark line between these two great celebrations, one cannot exist without the other, and they are dependent upon the other. We needed a perfect lamb to die as a sacrifice, and that perfect lamb came to die as a sacrifice. And so that they belong irrevocably always together as examples of God's grace that he humiliated himself and became one of us. And then he went and died for us to make up the difference in our righteousness so that we can meet God's standard. He became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God.
and we don't deserve any of it. It is by God's grace we have been saved. So I'm going to ask pray for a couple of minutes. This is a time for you to pray. This is a time for you to think about God's grace, especially as it's been applied to your life. It's a time to think about what it is to live under grace. Think about what God's given you that you don't deserve and offer him thanks for his good gift.